Now, Wes, before we start, I got to let people know. Next week, we're having a schedule change. Just for one week, because we're making room for OSCON. You know about That's OSCON? That's a big deal. Yeah. We're going to be at OSCON on July 22nd, uh, which is a Wednesday. You can go to meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting if you want to join us. We're going to meet up, and we're going to be at OSCON itself. If you're going to be on the floor, you're welcome to come up and say hi to Noah and I, or go out to dinner with us afterwards, meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting. To make room for that, we're going to have to leave on Tuesday, though, which means unplugged on Monday next week. Woo! Yeah, same bat time, just a different bat day. Does that make sense? I think so. Is that a thing people say? Let's just say? pretend that it does. And a bat channel, too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so we're going to do it Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific, but you go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. And I, may, I want to put this right here at the top because we love having you guys join us live in our virtual lug. So join us live next week, Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar, and come say hi to us at OSCON. And remember, you can also use the promo code Linux to get a 20% discount off of your OSCON pass, if you'd like. If you want to come down and say hi to us, I think like the base pass is like 50 bucks, and you get 20% off that. It's not bad to come say hi. What a deal. And you get to say hi to all the vendors and all that kind of it's a really it's a, it's a great pass. The Expo Pass is a great one to go. So uh, that'll be next Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. Join us live at jblive.tv. And I would be up for the VR debate because uh, I'm back on board. I'm back <laughs> on the VR train. I'm back on. I got off the hype train for so, a little bit, and I'm back on. So we've just recorded two episodes of the Ubuntu podcast. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, Popey's on holiday, but we've just done a segment on Google Cardboard. Yeah. And? And? Yeah. Nice. I think I'm going to get one just to try it out. I think it's a low enough barrier to entry I that think, it's, you know what, it's I interesting. Be. I wouldn't be. Uh, sorry. I think you should win be because, and here's why... <laughs> I'm going to get I'm going to get uh, junk people are going to call and tell me I'm a no no here's what I think you should do I think cardboard is the best solution because uh, so having tried the uh, Oculus uh, DK2 right and uh, having tried that hooked up to the PC I will say it is very very clunky it is not production ready but if you scale it down and you go with something like the Samsung VR Innovation Edition or the Google Cardboard, it is not as dramatic of an experience. It is not as necessarily as high-powered. But it is so simple and straightforward, and there's already a bunch of good stuff in the Play Store. Um, and in the case of the Samsung VR Innovator Edition, there's an entire Oculus App Store filled full of stuff that you can try that uh, is legit. And uh, in, in the case of the S6 Innovator Edition, because the screen on the S6 is like 544 PPI, it actually has a higher resolution than the Oculus. So you can wow. actually get smartphones that have a higher resolution now than the Oculus and Google Cardboard, too. Yeah, yeah, and it's a low, like you say, it's low low cost, so it's almost zero risk. So, Mark, who was discussing Google Cardboard, he bought you know the cheapest cardboard version he could find for four quid, and he tried it out, and from that he's decided actually it's quite good and it's good enough, and there's enough content that he'll probably buy a slightly better headset. Yeah. To you know, use more frequently. He's he's more into games than than I am. Well, you, you um, know, my you, use case is a little bit more disturbing, but um, just oh, as much fun, I think. What is it? Well, <laughs> so um, you know, if you get a new cat, you know, eventually <laughs> you uh, you decide to buy them catnip, and you all sit in a circle and give the cat catnip, and then you know, you all, right. all enjoy the cat yes. wigging out on catnip for the first time. No, I've never done I'm that. Just no, wondering, no, no, of course. <laughs> I'm just wondering, you know, what would Google Cardboard do to four and five year old girls? I'm kind of interested to see what it does to well, children. You know, I, I, uh, <laughs> I put Dylan in the uh, uh, DK2 and um, almost a year ago and about two weeks ago, he brought it up to me and he said, Dad, can I can I do that? Can I wear that headset again and, and ride that roller coaster again? And I haven't talked to him about it in that entire time. And it, on a, at five, now he's six. Wow. 
and it left enough of an impression on him that he brought it up on his own to me. And so our conversation that, Wimpy, you and I have had, and, and Popey has been involved in too, about VR in the pre-show here, and then Dylan's sort of, um, like, it really made an impression on him, and it made an impression on me. I decided I, was, I wanted to revisit the VR topic and not maybe, because after Oculus abandoned Linux, I kind of was like, I'm done. I'm, screw these guys, right? But, you know, I did end up with a Galaxy S6. And uh, the thing is, is once you have the Galaxy S6, you basically have the most expensive component to getting the Galaxy VR set up. Because uh, once you have the phone, it's basically, you just need the headset. So I, yesterday, I received the Galaxy VR Innovator Edition headset. And it's pretty, guys. Yeah, and Wes has had a chance to play with it, too. And uh, there's some things that are awkward about it, like you have to have your phone on and unlocked before you put it in. But once you do that, it has a USB port built into it, the mini USB port that the phone clicks into, and then it snaps in. And now it's in virtual reality mode, and it has a uh, light sensor in the headset, so it detects when I have the headset on. And right now I'm in a Samsung Gear VR uh, theater room, where I have uh, an Oculus uh, library in front of me of, of different games that are built on the Oculus platform that I can pull from. I also have movies that I can watch. And what's truly, truly, truly amazing and thrilling is uh, I, what I expected to, to be really fascinating about this was the gaming and sort of the, the uh, tourism element of it. They have, like, amazing photos. Like, there's a tour of London and a tour of Paris, and they have... Uh, of course, they have space travel, which is virtual. But Wes, as you saw, it's very impressive. Oh yeah, definitely. And uh, so, I'd, I'd be interested to hear more from Wes, given that you know you're in the studio and you can actually see this thing, and you're an impartial observer. So here, you can play you, with it, and it might be it? hard with the headphones. But yeah, so Wes, you got to let's see, you did the uh, and and uh, it does work a lot better if you have uh, headphones. So Wes is going to have to kind of compromise on that for this part of it. But uh, what was your impressions of it? Actually, I was very impressed. You know, it's sturdily made. Uh, clearly, they had at least one industrial designer on this thing. It's like, you know, <laughs> yeah. kind of the opposite of the cardboard. Yeah, in that respect. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, lightweight. And um, it does feel really well built, huh? It does feel really yeah. well built. You know, it's solid. It fits well. It's interesting. Uh, it's got a touchpad built into the side of it. It's got an Android back button. And then on the other side, it's got a tiny little fan that you don't really hear. No, I didn't hear it at all. Uh, what did you think of the graphics? You know, it was... Um, they were a little a little, a little blurry at times, mm-hmm. but uh, and a little screen door effect little, at times. A little screen yeah. door effect, but otherwise it was very smooth. It yeah. was very engaging. Um, you know, it fits really well on your head, and so just being able to look around and you know, we were sitting in the restaurant having probably a million people gawk at us. But yeah, yeah, we did it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I really had no idea. You know, That's I could have been anywhere. We are you guys? Is at the restaurant? Uh, I was uh, at the restaurant. I had uh, Wes try it out. Now, Wes, I want you to try something that you didn't get a chance to try out yet. And this is truly one of the most incredible experiences I ever had for virtual reality. Uh, this is going to put you on stage during a Coldplay conference. Now, I don't know if you're a, if you're a Coldplay fan, but you, and this is going to be a little hard for you to see, but. Uh, they have a 360-degree camera. Yeah, so now what do you think of that? Oh, wow. Now you can look all around and wait. I want you to go until they uh, they launch the paper on the stage. Isn't that amazing? Look at him dancing there, and you see all the different bands playing. Oh, yeah, you know, the resolution's really not bad. Yeah, for real video, it's quite good. Yeah, Yeah. smooth, Yeah, very little blur. Not surprising that the two... uh, Largest install bases so far are uh, cardboard and Gear VR. Yeah. Experience yeah. oriented. Yeah. You can look around and see all the people dancing in the crowd. And yeah. 
Yeah, isn't that it a... sounds pretty cool, except for the Coldplay part. Yeah, <laughs> the Coldplay part's a bit rough, but uh, it's a, it's a pretty neat experience to, to see these guys and you know to see them dance right in front of you. You can even see his man boobs jiggle. <laughs> yeah, it's very much so. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow, yeah, here comes the paper. Yeah, isn't that neat? Oh, wow. Yeah. The confetti is really something. Cool, cool, cool. kind of surprises you, honestly. That's awesome. Yeah, and so uh, what's great about it is in theater mode, you get a full 3D experience. Like, it's better than it's better than any kind of like movie theater experience because it's truly it's you know you're truly immersed in the whole thing here let me uh, honestly i would rather watch things on tv hold on i'll turn your mic on sorry there you go say again Wes. i would probably rather watch some things on that than on a tv i was way more engaging i watched the movies last night on this and it is and and, and, you know if you want to watch something 3d screw a 3d television this is where where it's at and way less of an investment well if you have an essay okay it, it runs off the power of the phone which is good and bad because it does drain the phone but it means that you can all you have to do is take the phone and this and if you're going on an airplane for Done. traveling or a train, this would be wow. Yeah, it's a theater where you ever you go. So, what do you think, Wimpy? Can Are you, you impressed? Charge, uh, I'm interested. I don't know if I'm impressed yet. I'm gonna. I've got some more questions for you. Can you can you plug a you know an external charger into the phone whilst using it? Yes. One of these, you There's know, a little mini batteries. USB port on the bottom of the VR that you could plug in, and then that would supply power to the phone too. So I if think you I saw. Were, if you're doing your train journey or your flight, you could power yeah. the thing as your yeah. case. That's or good. maybe even just run off like a portable battery. And for those of us that have not seen these, is this the, the shutter effect 3D or is it polarized glass effect? I don't, I don't know if it's either. To be honest, and I don't, That's I don't know. Question. Yeah, I don't know exactly how they do it. Uh, it may be a shutter effect, or so. You know, what's happening on a technical level is the the galaxy screen goes into like a stereo optical mode, and right. then there's lenses in the VR that tune those in. And uh, I don't know how it does it, but it is a very immersive 3D experience. You know, it's it's full. So, so is it half the screen for one eye and half the screen for the other eye, effectively? That then the lens filters. I don't know. I don't actually think that is the case. I don't think so, but I don't know know how it works well. The fact that you don't know bodes well. Yeah, and I think part of it, part of it is the screen resolution is so high to begin with, right, that it's, it's way higher than it's like a, it's very, I forget what it is off the top of my head, but even if you had to bring, bring it down, it would still be probably higher than 1080p. Yeah, both cardboard and Gear VR do have a divider, so it, it must be splitting the screen in half. Yeah, I, every now and then when I pull the phone out, I've seen it like in sort of like stereo optical mode, and it is, it's kind of funny looking on the screen, and then the screen snaps out of it. And, you know, if you run it for about 45 minutes to an hour, it'll start to say, oh, it's too hot, depending on what you've been doing. Take the phone out for a while, and you've got to take the phone out. So, so you need two. Yeah. <laughs> <Swap them in. laughs> this is Linux Unplugged, episode 101 for July 14th, 2015. Welcome to Linux Unplugged, your weekly Linux talk show that just finished a virtual tour of the solar system. And man, Jupiter was beautiful. My name is Chris, and joining me in studio, Wes is back. Hey, Wes. Hey, guys. Hey, how you doing, buddy? Oh, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Good, good. You don't have food coma, right? Oh, no. Good. The yeah, beer's we, helping a lot. Yeah, the beer helps, right? It's like, it's the opposite of caffeine, but for some reason it, it wakes you up. I, I don't know how that works. We'll just keep telling ourselves that. Well, <laughs> I don't know about that, but coming up on today's episode of Linux Unplugged, to tell you what I do know about, uh, there is some big news happening in one of our most beloved things to hate. That's Flash. We're going to talk about the big changes coming to Flash and how it's going to affect Linux users. Also coming up in the show, a really, really, really well done write-up about a KDE user who spent a week in GNOME 
And he was able to put his thoughts in a way that really resonated with me and a lot of people in the audience. I'm getting a lot of feedback on uh, this write-up, and I want to talk about it today with our virtual lug. And then after that, OpenSUSE, we've talked about it a little bit on uh, Linux Action Show. We've talked about it a little bit on this show. OpenSUSE 42. It's a big new proposal, big dreams, a lot of changes coming. The success of Tumbleweed has made OpenSUSE reevaluate the OpenSUSE project. And we covered that on Sunday's show. But I think maybe some people didn't like our opinion or have a different opinion. We're going to cover that feedback and discuss the nuances there. And I think it's going to be a really, really fascinating discussion. But, Wes, before we get to all of that, we actually have some really great emails we're going to read this week. Since in 100, we didn't well, like read any feedback. Yeah. So let's get into all of this. Let's invite in the virtual lug. Time-appropriate greetings. Mumble room. Hello. 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 Good morning, good afternoon, and it's the evening. So, guys, we have so much to cover today, and it's maybe it's the beer, maybe it's because we just started the show, but it's starting to get warm in here. You, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Roasty toasty. You know I'm not making it up, either. It is warm in here. It's nice to have somebody who validates it, like, yeah, Chris is not making it up. All right. Earl writes in, and I love this. You guys remember the conversation we had around mm-hmm. Linux Mint? Last week, we had the review, and the week before that, we had a conversation. Is it too boring for us Linux users? Is Mint going the direction that maybe long-term is going to kind of leave it behind? Or is that exactly the sweet spot? Well, Earl writes in, and he has a very interesting perspective. He says, hi, Chris, in the mumble room. He says, I'm a 70-year-old Linux Mint user. He says, I started Linux in early 23 by installing Debian, or 2003, by installing Debian on a Savage Spark 64. What a chore and a lot of fun. I installed Debian on a Savage Dual Processor P2 later on. That was an awesome experience, but yet another challenging task. Then I discovered Ubuntu 4.10. By Ubuntu 5.10, I'd switched to Linux over. I'd switched to Linux completely. And in 2007, I bought a Dell laptop with Linux installed on there, and I used GNOME 2. When Ubuntu moved to Unity, I moved to Linux Mint. I've been running Linux Mint with Mate ever since. Not a real tech geek, but I still f- I feel I have some knowledge, and I wanted to comment. Uh, Mint Mate Edition doesn't get in my way. It just works. It's not about the desktop. It's about the programs and what I can do. I like the desktop, and I like the fact that it doesn't change every month or so, other than maybe a few improvements when a new release comes out. I like that it doesn't keep changing things underneath me. It just keeps improving, and it works. Maybe it's boring, but it works. It also is about the community. I love this point. Clem keeps the users informed about what he and the team are doing and why they are doing it. He responds to user input. He addresses user issues personally. I've had some users on Linux Mint. I've had some users on Linux Mint, I guess, as you pointed out. I'm, uh, he says, I'm a brand. All the computers are savage. Uh, uh, no latest and greatest. They all are just great desktops. I keep experimenting with distros, but nothing's replaced Mint Mate for me for reliability and ease of use. So he says, and a lot of users in this respect need this. So we're at, if, you know, and I completely, I completely agree. He says, I watch over the shows, and the Savage HP runs, has a crappy video card. So he downloads and then watches what he calls his Linux soaps later. His friends called him that. <laughs> I love it. Uh, that's great. So Earl writes in with his perspective on why Linux Mint for a 70-year-old 70, 70 is, uh, is just the right distro. That makes sense, right? It totally makes sense. And we kind of said that. Um, what, do you, what, what distro do you use? Uh, I use Arch. Mm, oh, really? Yeah. Well, there you go. I do have Mint deployed at work, though, and I will say it does, you know, when it, I just need to use an application, it's there. I, you know, it has very similar key bindings. You can do a lot of things you can if you're coming from Windows or you're coming from Linux. So when you say uh, you have Mint deployed, like Mint is your desktop at work? Uh, yes, for one of my And then at machines. home you're running Arch? Yes. Ah, I gotcha. And uh, uh, Rotten Corpse, you're running Mint right now? Yeah, I actually dropped Arch and went to Mint. What? Tell me about this. Yeah. Well, okay, so 
I've been using KDE for the past couple months, and I was trying to test it out because I'm a huge GNOME fanboy, and I wanted to, you know, stop talking out of my butt about mm-hmm. KDE. So I started using it, like deep dive, full in everything. Oh, you're going to be perfect and for today's episode, then. I guess, <laughs> I guess so. And I've actually um, changed my opinion of KDE a lot, and I am now a huge fan of KDE. There are certain things that I can't stand, but <laughs> KWIN, for example, is fantastic. Yeah. But that's not the point. Yeah. We'll, um, we'll get to that, though. The, yeah. The reason why is because when I was using Arch in, in February, Arch destroyed KDE. Like, unusable breakage. So, I, tr- I did some updates. I did some bug fixes. I sent some, uh, some, some workarounds and things like that. And after about 20 of those, I got sick of it and just left. Uh, so I wanted to see, okay, maybe Debian. You know, Debian yeah. is you know the 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 de facto standard of not breaking anything. Right. Good old so stable, on, steady, true Debian. Yeah. So I was on Debian. I actually went to Sid because I wanted to get the latest versions of things. <laughs> Naturally. So you know, yeah. technically, <laughs> Debian has really good rolling uh, compatibility, and it's very it's actually more stable because they take, even though their stuff is rolling, they take longer to test things even in the unstable branches. Uh, so then when I get the update for KDE, and I was like, let's see if Debian has messed anything up. I'm curious now. So when I check it, I see if there's any bugs, no bug reported. Then I pull in all of the KDE's new stuff, and it destroys pretty much everything. Like to the point where system settings, the most important application, doesn't work. Oh, jeez. Wow. Like, like it, it doesn't even show you any of the settings. All of them are gone. It's and, and now, when I went back like a week later after I was laughing about it, because now it's just hilarious that all of these transitional things are just breaking everywhere. Um, I went to look at the bug support, bug reports, and it said completely unusable is there on the report of it. So then I was like, okay, well, Kubuntu, you know, Kubuntu is like the the they they also they don't update that much, you know. Uh, yeah, they, it's also broken. Because they went to 5.2, which is not ready, and they broke it. Yeah. So Kubuntu right now is just a mess. So this uh, is why you ended so, up on Mint? Yeah, because Mint hasn't broken anything because they haven't updated much of it in a long time. Yeah, funny for, like, how that the works. Core. <laughs> yeah, they haven't broken anything for the core. So like this transitional phase between 4 and 5 is like just it's just crazy to the point where right now it's not a reasonable solution. Until unless you stay on four and you don't update to framework five, or you just go straight to five and deal with the bugs, trying to do this weird combination thing, it does not work. Hmm. So I'm on Mint Mint uh, seventeen point one because they don't have a KDE version for seventeen point two right mm-hmm. now, and I am perfectly happy with stuff not breaking. Hmm. I think it echoes what Linus says a lot. You know, what his views on on his kernel is. You know, get out of the way, let people run the applications they want to run. Yeah. Yeah, Mint is very much a distro like that. Yeah. And and you know what? I think uh, my argument mostly wasn't around that there isn't a place for it because I, I, I don't argue that at all. My argument was more if I was going to cold recommend a distro to somebody and I felt like they were the type of user that wanted that environment, which right. would be a lot of new users, Windows switchers, enterprise users, a lot of people, or like Earl, right? Uh, I think I would recommend Ubuntu Mate. I do not think I would necessarily recommend Mint necessarily. Mostly because I would, I, if I, if it was a perfect world, I would like to be able to just recommend vanilla Ubuntu. Just go download the Ubuntu ISO and use that. However, I'm not convinced that Unity Seven is something I want to start switching people to right now at yeah. this point in time. And also, the search scopes are still embarrassing. 
Like, we actually had a problem this week when we were trying to shoot a uh, screen cap for the Linux Action Show. And the first time through, like, bra and underwear came up in the search scope. And it's like, wow. really? We don't really want to put bra and underwear. I mean, we could, you know, like, it's kind of funny. But at the same time, it's like, really? Like, we're trying to have a professional demonstration here and bra and underwear is coming up in our, in our search results. And I just don't want to recommend that to somebody. But I want to stay as close to the upstream distro. So an official flavor to me seems like a pretty logical choice. And the Matei desktop environments, classic desktop yep. environment, people are very familiar with it. It's, you, know, you can get the LTS version. When I stack that up against Mint, I'm not quite sure why I would recommend Mint over the other, other than they do take care of some of the other niceties. And like Earl said, you know, Clem's, like, I really, as so, if, my, if I was in Earl's position, I would like to be able to have a community uh, leader who was also very clear and very transparent. And that would be something that would appeal to me, too. Uh, but, yeah, uh, Mumble or any other thoughts on that before we uh, move on to our next email, which is really kind of a, a one that made me think. Going once, yeah. I'd like to. Yeah, I'd like to say um, I agree with the official flavor thing. Uh, the only reason I'm not I'm using Mint right now is because the Ubuntu thing's weird. But if somebody wanted Mate, absolutely Ubuntu Mate is the better option. Uh, I think the only other reason for Mint right now would be if somebody wanted Cinnamon. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, that's what I'm using. You know. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, my work machine has a and how is that card? So it, it handles it very well, actually. Yeah. Uh, three DisplayPort monitors, uh, hardly ever a glitch. Hmm. Yeah, and Cinnamon's a pretty good environment for like a for sort of a parallel to between somewhere between GNOME and KDE. Yeah, a lot of the people I work with uh, kind of come from a Windows background as well, and so you know you can split Windows up on the four sides. You has a start bar. Yeah, it yeah. has some graphical niceties that they're used to. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Uh, Mumble room, what, any more? Chris, I was wondering, are we getting to a point where anybody that's um, just a casual user or interested in getting work done should be on an LTS? And the only people that you know, we recommend rolling to are people that are looking for the latest and greatest feature or have a specific hardware support issue. That's a great question. I mean, you recommend rolling to anyone unless they want it. I they think ask you for it. I think we should answer that question. I think we should see if we can answer that question when we get to the OpenSUSE follow-up because that's exactly the question OpenSUSE is. So you're going to have you're going to have Tumbleweed, which is a rolling release. You're going to, oh they they claim it's going to be the world's first stable rolling release because only things go into the rolling release after they've been fully tested by our uh, magic testing system. Uh, so that's according to them. So they're going to have rolling releases, then they're going to have OpenSUSE, which is going to be somewhere in between a real steady enterprise distro, but it's going to be sourced from an enterprise distro. So that's kind of going to be somewhere like in the CentOS range of type products, somewhere between CentOS and Fedora if I'm following. And of course, we're going we're gonna to talk about all this in a minute. And then you're going to have, of course, the, the SLE, the, the SUSE Linux Enterprise Editions. And, and that, what you just said, that where, could be where SUSE, OpenSUSE is going to fit very, very nicely, potentially. So we'll just have to, but maybe not. And maybe I have that wrong. Let's talk about that in uh, the SUSE segment. But first, I want to get to Stefan's email. This one got me thinking. Longtime listener says, huge fan of about all, just about all of the shows. I'm sure he meant all of them, not just, just about. Of course. He says, I'm writing because the conversation around privacy and trusting your data and information, especially with companies like Google, seems to always result in, and this is his quote here, we shouldn't because that's just creepy. We feel that it's not morally right for companies to sell or use our data in order to serve free products and services, to which I do agree, or at least I think I do. Could it be possible for you to talk about why exactly this is not okay? What are we afraid of? Why should we take so good care of our privacy and personal information in the first place, uh, is it all just aggregated? Isn't it all just being aggregated and impersonalized by a bunch of uh, computers anyways and grouped together with thousands of other people's information? Has this just become a principle that storing user data is wrong? Why is this fight so important to fight? We want technology to engage with us in every aspect of our life, yet the companies developing these technologies are not allowed to know anything about us? 
That doesn't sound about right. Why is my weight, age, sex, height, favorite food, most used train station, travel history, etc., so damn important that I should know them and that only I should know them? And again, is that really privacy? Best regards, Stefan, and keep up the amazing work. What a fast... Why, Wes, what do you think? So do you ever get creeped out about Google? You know, I, they are somewhat integrated. Uh, I, I do appreciate his argument. I was installing Telegram on my girlfriend's iPhone the other day. Uh, you know, I've been using it with some of my friends, and she wanted to use it too. Uh, and I was telling her about some of the encryption. I'd used TechSecure before. And whenever I mention encryption, she does kind of just laugh. <laughs> you know, she, she understands, but... Uh, yeah. Not uh, a priority for her. Not at all. Yeah. And she, I don't think she has any problem with Google, you know, knowing every little bit about her. I, go, I waffle on this. I go back I and too. forth. I, I, at, some, at times, I think it's, uh, it's really a great service. And how can you have Jarvis and Star Trek Enterprise computer system and all these things without that data collection? At the same time, though, uh, I, 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 I think I have put my finger on what creeps me out about it. And, uh, but I'm going to hold on to that for a second. I'll let Wimpy jump in. Wimpy, you go first. What do you think? Uh, uh, what's your take on this topic? Well... Um I live in the UK, and the UK is doing some crazy things at the moment. Mm. So uh, our government believes that the UK citizens uh, have no right to um, right. Uh, electronic privacy anymore. And I would say that this is important because if your um, civil liberties and your privacy are, are eroded bit by bit, piece by piece, and you don't think it's important, these are just stepping stones and it might not be this thing or the next thing, but maybe the thing after that or the thing after that is the thing that you think is too much, too too far, that encroaches into your life. And certainly in the UK, if you know they're going to um, ban, uh, in air quotes, some of these encrypted uh, messaging platforms, which we've now concluded is basically anything that's encrypted, then that gives people the right to, or gives the government the right to potentially... Um, siphon and archive uh, your message streams that you're using over encrypted channels, such as like Facebook Messenger. So if your family is using Facebook Messenger to send photographs of your family members and your children backwards and forwards, and the government is taking a feed off that and doing flesh percentage of flesh tone analysis, is your account now being flagged up because you've got young children that are prone to taking off all their clothes and running around in the garden naked? Um, and do you now look like a suspicious individual? And should you not have a right to privacy? I have. I've uh, wondered about that same thing. Like, if my wife sends me a picture of uh, our daughter's butt in the bathtub, and you know that goes through Hangouts, and they rec- and they are analyzing everything that goes through Hangouts, is there some algorithm analyzing my daughter's butt and flagging my account for having nudity in my? That's a good question. How do yeah. I know? Exactly. I think that's a big part too. Is you know, it for right now with the technology we have, maybe there aren't that many ramifications, but. We don't know how, what kind of retention policies maybe are in effect. You know, they huge keep, part of it. You can recognize people based on iris scans, face profiles. You know, I'm not not trying to be conspiracy theorist, but the computing power just keeps getting better and better. Right. Though you map yeah. produce these things, and yeah. you can learn a lot. Wimpy. Also, there's a, there's a certain amount of power a company like Google has when they know everybody I'm with, every location I'm at all the time. Does that concern you? Um, to some extent. More, more so if now governments are wanting to put hooks into organizations such as Google and Facebook because there's a proven track record of people that work for the security services to not be discreet in <laughs> yeah. the way that they um, access this data mm-hmm. for, you know, lulls and giggles. You know, so, you know, your stuff isn't private anymore because they're, um, you know, just perusing over it when it 
takes their fancy and yeah. uh, that seems to be uh, the only the only um papers i've seen published about that were from from north america but it seemed to be an alarming number of people that had abused that privilege yes yes that's a good point is the people that are in that position sometimes abuse that ubi you want to take the other side of the fence as somebody who's not quite as concerned about privacy right uh to be honest i am quite uh concerned about privacy but i know uh people who aren't oh, okay. as a lot of people do and uh, a point that I find hard to argue against, uh, maybe there can be some ideas here, is uh, why care because there's so much data they're collecting that they won't be interested in looking at mine. Because it's not individuals looking at your data, it's computers looking at the data in aggregate, and computers are flawed. And so my my example of, you know, flesh tone analysis is a real example where your legitimate and legal use of a service could flag your account as being suspicious, and now you're under observation for doing nothing wrong. Mm -hmm. So the the computer's got nothing to hide it's that you shouldn't have anything that people are prying upon. I mean, if the UK government suddenly want to conduct all of their communications in the clear, then I'll back their proposals, but until they do that, it's a nonsense. Yeah, that's just interesting. As easily as, yeah, yeah, just as easily as computers can anonymize the data, they can also de-anonymize it. Yes, very good point. And here's, okay, so here's kind of where I come down on it, and and I, I, I think about, like, like the long-term picture here, and I think what Wes was kind of touching on is, like, computing power is only going to get better. Storage is only going to get greater, and they can keep this stuff for years and years and years and sometimes what you find when you read through history is what we find to be sort of totally acceptable and okay today will not necessarily be totally fine and acceptable 20 years ago and when i think about my son and my daughters who will who will my son for god's sakes already has like a children's google account oh, wow yeah he's because of school and he's six years old and and now he can get on youtube and look at like a kid's version of youtube he already has a a, a google account now, I, don't, I know they have different policies for how they track children, but in a large sense, my son, at six years old, has already begun getting just about everything he does online logged. And will 20-year-old him feel that he really consented to do that? Right. I don't know. And will 20-year-old 20, will 20 him really want to be, you know, like once it's, once it's recorded, it never goes away. Exactly. Um, and, I, and people change a lot, and it, it's just to have all of that on file and then to have this AI that can sit back there and analyze it and determine what kind of person you are so that way they can better art target dick pills at you. I just don't find it to be a valuable trade. It's not worth it for me. Uh, Sunsoul, you think the convenience does Trump in the end? I mean, it appears to be so far, right? Yeah, I mean, I think like let's just let, let's just be frank. Like when you get a cell phone, your privacy is out. You know what I mean? Like once you yeah. turn on that phone, like you've almost given a lot of your privacy away. <laughs> That's true. Huh? I mean, not, right uh, again. Not, not not trying to you know be the devil's advocate here, but it's just that like users really love convenience. You know what I mean? Like just whether it's your Siri iPhone, whether it's okay Google on your cell phone, or whatever it is, like just having that convenience to get data at your fingertips yeah. is what users really like. Yeah. Or, and you so, know what, you could zoom out. I mean, phones is what's on our minds, really, but it's if you use a credit card, you know, a bank account, all of this stuff, there's data brokers that are aggregating all of it. But that's a great point. Wimpy, I want you to give you the final word, and then we'll move on uh, to some, uh, some uh, other Linuxy feedback, but uh, I want to give you one last chance to jump in. So, uh, cryptography allows us the um, facility to have non-repudiation, which is to prove that um, I sent something and it hasn't been tampered with in the meantime. Uh, Hacking team were Mm. beautifully hacked last week. The delicious irony of that is not lost upon me. But one of the products that they sell 
is a product that deliberately injects false evidence into a um, a target's computer system mm, mm. so that they can be tried uh, in a um, air quotes court of law and if we are now in a position where you have no expectation of privacy and encryption is not a tool that's open to you then what's going to happen in some of these oppressive regimes or even in the UK if if they decide that they don't uh, you know, you're you're not flavour of the month anymore. It makes it all the easier mm. to actually inject evidence, you know, false evidence into your system. Hmm. Yeah, and uh, Corky makes a great point in the chat room. Uh, he can't join because of his ping spike, but he says when data is when data is permanent, you have to hope that every single executive or CEO or government that has access to that data does not use it against you. One government gone wrong could have a large leverage to prosecute you or prison you or to destroy your reputation or to silence you. That's that's, that's a big true. part too. Is being or able to corporations go yeah. bankrupt and yeah. sell yeah. off their assets. That you know you might that's trust Google point. to have that, but maybe yeah. the person who buys Google in thirty years you yeah. don't like someone. Or when Larry and Sergey step down, right. does the new guy that runs the place have a different concern about how much privacy users get to enjoy uh well i think this is fascinating you know what i I see north ranger has a topic we'll pick it up in the post show too if you guys want it's a fascinating topic i'd like uh, but i want to get to some of the other uh, linux emails we've gotten but it's one that i uh, you know the privacy and security is a huge reason why we use open source in linux so it's i don't think it's a i don't think it's a conversation that uh is not worth having i just think we have to uh bide our time but we'll do more in the uh, post show that sounds pretty fascinating uh, i wanted to get to an email that came into the show about uh well about flash to be honest in a sense uh and sometimes people that want to watch our show have to use a proprietary technology to do so like maybe you're going to watch an hd64 encoded video or maybe you're going to watch the live flash stream well some big big developments are happening this week really big actually today that may finally change this for good i hope and a very public company and two very public browsers are taking a very public position on all of that. But before we talk about hopefully the final death of Flash, I want to mention our friends at Ting. Go to linux.ting.com. Now, uh, when Wes got here earlier today, he's like, geez, Chris, how many phones do you got? And I was like, Wes, man, I got plenty of phones. Why? Because it's $6 a line. Yeah, I love Ting. So I've got right now in my uh, hot hands right here, I've got the Galaxy S6, uh, and it's been a really great phone for me. It's recently available on the Ting network, and here's what's fantastic about Ting. You only pay for what you use. Ting takes your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes, and they add them all up. Whatever bucket you fall into, that's all you got to pay. And it's just $6 for the line and then the taxes. So it makes it very economical to have several lines. If you've got like a family, or maybe you have a small business and you want to give folks in your business some lines, or uh, in my case, you know, when we had a nanny for a short period of time, uh, I got her a phone. And it sounds like, oh, my gosh, you're such a baller. Well, no. You can get an unlocked phone for under $100, and it's $6 for the line, and you just pay for your usage on top of that. And then what's really fantastic about Ting is the way their business is structured is they're really able to focus on the customer. And so they're able to build out additional functionality that most carriers wouldn't bother with. Like, they have really great mobile applications and a fantastic web UI to manage all of this. It's really good stuff. And they have no hold customer service. You can call them at 1-855-TING-FTW, and a real person answers the phone. Now, here's the, here's the, here's the core essentials that I love about Ting. Unlocked phones, you own them outright, and you're only paying for what you use. Like hotspot, tethering, it's all built in. So no more like prepaying for like, oh, I might use 800 minutes, so I better buy the 1,000-minute plan, like that kind of crap. Or like, I might need 3 gigs of data, but they only offer 6 gigs if I need that much data. That kind of, that is done. And, and really, it is so liberating when you realize that I once I get the phone and I do all that, 
that's done. Like, that's the hardest part. I'm easy. I'm, I'm ready to go. And here's the best part. When you go to linux.ting.com, you're going to take $25 off an unlocked device. And if you've got a Ting-compatible device, and there's a whole S-ton of Ting-compatible devices, because check this out, they got a GSM network and a CDMA network. And if you get a fancy phone, you can swap between the networks. I've done that with the Nexus 5, for example. So you get these phones. They're unlocked. Anything from a feature phone to a high-end like Nexus 6 or Moto X2 or, I don't know, the OnePlus or the S6, whatever you want, or iPhone 6, whatever you want to get, Ting's got it. And then you're on the plan, and you're done. The hard part's over. And that's not even that hard. $6 a month, pay for what you use. Call them anytime you got an issue. It's really slick. Go to linux.ting.com. That supports the show and gets you the discount. Mm. Also, this is a really slick way to go if you want, like, a MiFi device. If you're in any kind of job or, or if, you ha- if you just have a, a need for a high level of connectivity, what a great way to do this at an incredible value because you're only paying for what you use with Ting. So go get a MiFi device. You buy it once, and then it's just $6 a month and then any data usage. This is what, what, what as, a, as an independent contractor when I was doing IT, I had, this, I had this really expensive MiFi device from one of the Duopoly mobile providers. And I lived with the guilt every time it sat in my drawer for like a couple of weeks and I didn't use it. I could hear Angela in the back of my mind, that's a waste of money. That thing costs us $60 a month. How come you're not using it right now? And I would just like bring it with me just in case I might need it because I am paying so much money for it and I wouldn't use it. Now, this is gone with Ding because you're only paying for what you use. If you don't use the MiFi device, it's just $6 for the line. But here's the even better part. I can't even believe Ting lets you do this. You can just turn the line off for a while. You just turn it off. How slick is that? Go to linux.ting.com to get started. Check out their dashboard. They have a savings calculator there. Also, while you're there, peruse their blog. They've got great app picks. They have an unboxing of the Moto E 2nd Gen Edition. And uh, they also have app picks there, as always, and uh, like tips for Google Maps. Really cool stuff. linux.ting.com. And a huge, huge thank you to Ting for sponsoring the Linux Unplugged program, linux.ting.com. And thanks to everybody who visits that, because that supports the show and lets Ting know that you appreciate them keeping us on the air. Right, Wes? Oh, yeah. Hey, thank you for grabbing me another beer, sir. I really appreciate My that. My pleasure. All right. Uh, so we got a little bit more feedback. I kind of want to pick up the pace just a tad, because I want to get to uh, some of the big topics today. But let's talk about this huge, huge, huge story. Uh, and I want to start kick it off with um, a piece of feedback that I get almost um, at least a weekly basis, more often in the chat room on a daily basis. Uh, so this came in from Yellow Mango, which is kind of funny. He says, while setting up my new Fedora install, I went to add my favorite podcast to Rhythmbox. Oh, thanks, man. And however, when I went to play the video, I noticed I needed to download a decoder. The decoder just happens to be a non-free one. Why in the world is an open source focused podcast using a non-free encoding? Maybe there's a legitimate reason. I just don't know about it. And this comes in in a couple of different phases or different ways like you guys have a flash player for example like our live right, stream right. and Wes have you ever what are, what are your thoughts like on when it comes down to this codec stuff do you have a hard line on this at all uh, I mean I definitely follow the people over at ziff.org you know Monty and his wonderful demos and I would I would love for open source and free codecs to rule the world yeah but I, you know I think the top commenter in this reddit post does have a certain point that what did he say I didn't uh, see that he said because he wants to actually be discovered and watched by 95% of the world who live <laughs> oh, in proprietary geez. prisons <laughs> Which, unfortunately, many people do. Oh, there is a sort of a sick uh, truth to that. Uh, there is definitely a sick truth to that. Um, so, yeah, uh, we do actually pretty make, we make every show available in WebM. Yeah, which is awesome. Uh, but we don't necessarily make it available for direct download. We, uh, in most cases, make it available via torrent, which is linked in the show notes mm-hmm. in most cases. Thing is, is we've not been very happy with WebM, so we, it costs us a lot to store it and distribute it. 
it actually costs us more to distribute a 420p version of a show in WebM than it does to distribute a 720p version of the show in X264. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's, it's, it is only because we want to see open standards progress that we actually pay. WebM is the most expensive thing we distribute. Wow. Yeah. So it is. Kudos to you guys. To, well, I mean, it makes HTML5 playback work. So right. we, that's another reason why we have to do it. Uh, and then Rikai can attest to the fact that it is by far, by far, by far the slowest file to encode. We can get a week. We could crank out four HD versions almost of a show in the time it takes one 420p WebM version to come out. Wow. Almost four versions of the HD version in the time it takes one WebM version to be encoded. Almost that long. Uh, and, and so this, though, often comes up in, in, the, in terms of our jblive.tv live stream, which is powered by Flash because really live streaming, it, we have other options. In fact, uh, I, by the end of this segment, I think we should all just disable Flash on our computers for a week and see if it works. And Amen. go to jblive.tv and grab the RTMP or HLS stream and watch it MPV or VLC. So that, I'll say that up front. But we do have, a, we do have one Flash player on, on the Jupyter Broadcasting site, and that's our live player. Well, today, if, uh, depending on which browser you're in, you may have had troubles loading the live stream because Mozilla and I think Google Chrome, too, today, have started blocking Flash just as Facebook's security chief calls for its death, all in light of the hacking group that Wimpy was just talking about getting hacked and zero-day Flash vulnerabilities being splashed all over the web. Adobe's been scrambling to patch these new zero-day vulnerabilities. And in response to that, the Facebook security chief has taken up the Steve Jobs mantle of saying, kill Flash, kill Flash, and is proclaiming its death. He says the time is now. And in response, Mozilla is disabling Flash because the zero-day is affecting Flash installations right now as we record record this show. There's a lot of stuff happening here. Do you think the web is ready for Flash to die, Wes? I really wish that it was. Personally, I am. I don't think I need it. Um, <laughs> but I recognize there are a lot of users with random use cases, like, oh, my, my one banking company requires me to use Flash for this login form, or who knows. But yeah. I feel like we hear a lot about those Wimpy, I bet excuses. you have a few of those use cases in mind, don't you? Mr. Wimpy? Oh, sorry. Wait, I have well, you? Oh, there you go. Yep. I do. So, can you hear me? Yep, we got you. Yeah, can you hear? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, in the in the UK, um, Amazon Prime, uh, the BBC, ITV, Channel Four, Channel Five, and Catch Up TV services all use Flash. Some of them even use uh, the DRM module in Flash, mm-hmm. which is no longer sure. supported sure. Uh, on most Linux systems because um, HAL went away that used to provide that little crypto stub. Um, so if Flash goes away, then all of the major UK streaming services cease to be relevant for um, Linux users because there is no other option. Wow. Um, you know, the only one that continues to work is... Um, is Netflix using Google Chrome, which is also proprietary. So but this hey-ho. is not about Flash on Linux. This is a Flash in general, and that Mozilla and Google are blocking it cross-platform. Yeah. So, so, yeah, but the, the, the same is true. Um, these services, uh, w- with the exception of uh, Amazon Prime, which hmm. you can use Silverlight for on okay. Windows, yeah. uh, all of those other streaming services require Flash, regardless of whether you're on Windows uh, or Linux. Right, but I'd rather them... I'd rather flash die and those services not work and make them actually use something that isn't garbage for a downtime of like a month or two 
than to just yeah, those you know throw your hands up and give hurry. up. Well, let me let me let me let's just as but for but, just know, for fun if, discussion. If purposes. anyone was going to move away from Flash, people have started doing it but, more more aggressively. But don't you think now, Wimpy, with them disabling it in uh, Firefox and uh, and things like that, don't you think that's going to accelerate? Uh, because this, like like Rodden said, this isn't a Linux thing. This is everybody, and plus the iOS platform and Android platforms are not Flash friendly still. So there's incentive to get off there. Maybe this push could do it. Hopefully, I mean. So- I mean, if it was if it was just Mozilla doing it, then you know there'd be a I mean, uh, you know you couldn't guarantee it. But the fact yeah. that Google is joining the the force and Facebook, I think yeah, actually, Facebook and, too, you know, and and it's going to so, put a huge dent in in Flash and hopefully even kill it. So I, I think here's it's pretty obvious: the streaming services are the ones still rely on Flash. Yes, yes, yes. But if you if you access the streaming services through a mobile phone nowadays, you already see that they are they don't really require Flash. So currently, Flash is there for convenience. Well, I'll tell you this. It has always been required. Unfortunately, so uh, the way it works currently, and man, Alan, it would be way better explaining this. He could, he does a great job explaining this. Um, but the way the way it works on mobile currently, most of the time, is well, I, I think every time it is delivered live video is delivered via HLS and HLS. And I'm sorry, I'm not going to explain this as well as Noah, or I'm sorry, as well as Alan would. But HLS, what it essentially does is it takes H.264 video and, a, and and MP3 or AAC audio, whatever your audio is, and it wraps it in tiny M3U playlist segment. files. Yeah. Oh, you know how this works? A so, little bit. I've yeah. streamed from it before. So HLS is about as proprietary as it gets because it's you know using H.264, and it's really very clunky. Yes. It's like because what you what the player is doing on the other end is it's constantly cycling constantly playlist files. To download yeah, the yeah, playlist. it's pulling the playlist file, pulling the playlist file, and then and then loading down the player and playing it as fast as it can, and pulling down the playlist file and loading the player and playing it as fast as it can, and it's really dumb. Yes, and uh, easy to lose the stream too. Yes, and so you get and on a mobile you get a little hiccup there, and you know you you lose some of that uh, playlist file, one of the playlist files, and you just drop the whole stream. And so we don't really have a solid ready to go live flash replacement yet. Um, and anybody who watches this show in VLC sometimes notices that MPV handles a little bit better. But uh, yeah, I honestly used the Flash player when I first started watching because VLC couldn't couldn't keep up. It's definitely better now. Mm-hmm. I will say that. Mm-hmm. And, but MPV is great too. Mm-hmm. I heard somebody. In there. I don't like I don't like VLC at all. Actually, I think that <laughs> its streaming compatible uh, features are so clunky that it gets way more hype than it deserves on at least on Linux. Maybe on Windows there's nothing better, but on Linux there's a lot. Now, Wimpy, I have had not that experience. Oh, go ahead, Daryl. I was just saying that I have had, uh, I haven't had that experience with regarding to VLC. I'm pretty sure that that's a discussion for another show. Yeah, we could. Well, yeah, we could have a topic on that. Uh, Wimpy, do you are you joking, or do you really think that if we prematurely kill Flash, which I can't even believe I'm going to say that, but it, let's just argue that maybe it's too soon. If we prematurely killed Flash, do you really think people would jump to another proprietary alternative like Silverlight, or is it like H.264? Are we just going to lock in some other proprietary garbage if we kill Flash right now? That's for you, Wimpy, if you're still there. I, I don't mind proprietary garbage, yeah, yeah, I am. Okay. I think there's a bit of lag yeah. on the line here. I'm not sure if it's me or someone else. Anyway, um, I'm not sure. Uh, I don't mind which proprietary solution people pick, so long as it's one that runs mm-hmm. on multiple platforms. So I don't have a problem with H.264 because Cisco are backing the licenses for that uh, being embedded into Firefox, for example. Um, 
Uh, uh, so uh, our Royal Gabe, um, I'm not pro-proprietary, I'm just pragmatic. If the only way Linux users are going to have access to premium content, which is going to be DRM encumbered, then at least uh, give us a level playing field so we can all access yeah. it. Um, but there is a, a new um, streaming service, a Netflix-like service in the UK that launched on Silverlight, and that was only uh, nine months ago. Yeah. So, yes, there are there are organisations that still go for Silverlight solutions, even on new products. I know, just it's crazy, isn't it? I, I would say, I want to take the DRM discussion. I just want to table it. Yes, I agree DRM is bad, uh, and I also agree proprietary garbage is bad. And if you don't want to watch DRM content and proprietary garbage, the solution isn't in what the browsers are implementing. The solution is in the customer stop paying for it and stop watching it. So if you want DRM to change and you don't want proprietary garbage, you got to change what you do and let the market follow. And that's, that's, that's a hard thing to act it's easier said than done when you say something like that but uh, i think that's i think that's the silver bullet to, to drm not or convincing just, these companies cross-platform proprietary garbage yeah yeah that, at least for, right that gives us everybody a chance to at least play at right. least until until we stop using it yeah i agree i do have to say i do have to say that uh potentially in the near future the new copyright directive on the eu level will actually kill drm with copyright legislation because it's currently seen as breaking the exceptions to copying uh, your private copy. So mm. it will have to be dropped. Mm. That'll be fascinating to watch. Thanks, guys. All right. So uh, let's shift gears and talk about uh, this gentleman who uh, was a, a hardcore KDE user. Uh, and he tried out GNOME for a week and then wrote up about it. Uh, and uh, I, I, I saw this article and I thought, oh, well, here's some clickbait. And I read through it and I went, that was really well done, really articulate, and I want to talk about it in the show, and I know we're going to have some differing opinions here, but we've got a lot more to get to, and then we also got the OpenSUSE discussion. So let's take a quick moment and uh, thank our next sponsor, Linux Academy. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged. Go there, get our 33% Linux discount. Linux Academy is a platform set up by people who are truly passionate about Linux and open source, and they really follow the content. They really follow the material, and they've got step-by-step video courses to help you learn. They've got downloadable, comprehensive study guides. The courseware comes with its own server. It spins it up in the lab for you on demand. The seven plus distributions you get to choose from refresh topics that you care about all the time. Docker, OpenStack, virtualization, uh, all of the technology around Linux as well. Everything from like uh, Ruby on Rails development to Android development to, you know, Linux basics. They've got over 1,500 self-paced courses, and I love the way the interface works. You log in, you get a great map of how long something's going to take you. you. You can download the guide for that before you go jump in. You can tell they have availability programming, so you can go there and say, I have this much time available. It'll automatically generate courseware that matches your availability. This is all really high-tech stuff. And, of course, they're using all Linux on the back end, too. Their virtualization platform, I learned a little bit about it when they became a sponsor. They were just finishing building it out. It's so, so slick. Uh, there is obviously a passion for the technology over at Linux Academy. And I think that when you're learning from somebody, that passion truly makes a difference. It's almost like CG in a movie. Like when you look at a CG character, you're like, oh boy, that uncanny valley, that is just enough creepy that it's not a real thing. That's how I feel like a lot of these online training course systems are. Like it's real close, except for, well, they needed to have a couple of checkboxes in the Linux and open source guy. Let's get the Apache course in here. Let's get the Linux course in here. Let's get the engine. You know, they check the boxes. And that's, that's their commitment to Linux and open source. That's not Linux Academy. 
Linux Academy is truly people passionate about this stuff, and that closes that Uncanny Valley gap. That makes it real. That makes it people that are truly living it and breathe it and trust it, and that's what they base their life around, and that's who you want to learn from. That's why you listen to podcasts made by people who truly love Linux and not a podcast made by Engadget talking about Linux. That would be awful, right? It's that same kind of disconnect and that big difference in that closing the gap that Linux Academy makes. They just refreshed their OpenStack course where they just really updated the Red Hat certified stuff. It's great. Go to linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. linuxacademy.com slash unplugged to get our special 33% discount that supports this show. Also, Shoot, while you're over there, see if they've updated any of their nuggets. I think these nuggets are the greatest thing ever. Oh, oh, oh look at this one. So they have, so these nuggets are like uh, anywhere from like two minutes to 60-minute like deep dive on courses that just show you like, hey, you want to know how to do X? Just do this. Well, look at this one. Video conversions on the command line with handbrake. Oh, that's awesome. That's great, right? VirtualBox, start a headless VM on boot. Also genius. They got some AWS stuff in here. They got building a firewall with IP tables. Just go deep dive on a topic, right? Just dig in. You know, it doesn't feel like a lecture. It feels like a new toy that you've just got, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. I love it. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged and support the Linux Unplugged program. It's a really good setup. And I also just, I love that they've built it uh, around the Linux environment in such a cool way with those virtual servers. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged. Okay, guys. So uh, I couldn't believe it. I I thought for sure there was no way I was going to get sucked into this article, but I did. A week with GNOME as my main Linux desktop, what they get right and what they got wrong. And I'm just going to read a couple of bits from it, and then we'll get into discussion here. It says, uh, yeah, I, don't, I, I have a couple of points I want to touch on, but uh, let's start on the article itself. An, an important distinction between KDE and GNOME, the author writes, GNOME feels like a product. It feels like a singular experience. When you use it, it feels complete, and that everything you need is at your fingertips. Hmm. It feels like the Linux desktop. In the same way, Windows or OS X have the desktop experience. What you need is there, and it's all written by the same guys working towards the same team goal. It feels like the Linux desktop. Now, uh, Wes, KDE, GNOME user? Uh, GNOME user myself. Do you agree? Does GNOME feel more like a Linux complete desktop to you? Well, you know, I, I think what we were talking about earlier, uh, a lot of things, Qt does feel much more, you know, wider world. It mm-hmm. runs on so many things. Mm-hmm. People really love the framework and to code with it. Maybe not so much GTK. Um, but you're right. GNOME really fits in with Linux. It, you know, especially the hardcore support that they get from Fedora, mm-hmm. how well integrated it is. Um, so it's right on top of SystemD. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so the author spent five days of his week logging into GNOME manually, not turning on automatic login. And I love this observation. It's the small things in GNOME. It really is. In fact, the alternative article uh, title was a cut, a death by a thousand paper cuts for KDE. So here's like an example of something that bugs me under KDE that I like under GNOME. And it's like this times 100. He says, I spent the first five days of my week logging into GNOME manually, not turning on automatic login. On the night of the fifth day, I got annoyed with having to log in by hand, and so I went into the user manager and turned on automatic login. The next time I logged in, I got a prompt. Your keychain was not unlocked. Please enter your password to unlock your keychain. That's when I realized something. GNOME had been automatically unlocking my keychain, my wallet in KDE speak, every time I logged in via GDM. It was only when I bypassed GDM's login that GNOME had to step up and make it do me do it manually. It was at that moment I realized something simple, something that made the desktop feel like it was working with me. When I log into KDE via SSDDM, I'm sorry, SDDM, before the splash screen is even finished loading, there is a pop-up over that splash screen animation, thereby dis- disturbing that splash screen 
prompting me to unlock my KDE wallet or GPG keyring. And then he goes into the dysfunctions in creating those. And I thought that was an interesting point. Um, it's, it is the small things about KDE that bug me. Like he also talks about the login manager and the way that looks. But this, po- this point, um, this K- the KDE, when you log into the KDE desktop and you have to unlog your wallet, and this, this dialog box pops up before you've even finished logging into your desktop, it just feels disoriented. It feels disconnected. It feels jumbled. Which is a big criticism of Linux in general, right? Yeah, a hodgepodge of different tools. GNOME doesn't feel that way. Here's another hodgepodge. Software manager. Something that's been seeing a lot of push in the recent years and will likely see a bigger push in months to come. Unfortunately, it's an, AD, it's an area where KDE gets close, but then fell on its face. So GNOME Software is now his new favorite software center, minus one gripe, but Muon, which is the KDE one, it's kind of it's a design nightmare. And he's got some examples in here. And he, you know, he, I mean, I, I, I'm not bashing KDE, but he's right. There are, there, are, there are wiggles in the software center, like the fact that the updates and software are in two different applications, the fact that software discovery is a total, like, you look at this, it is, and what's really kind of a tragedy about it, and he goes on to point this out, is that KDE knows about this. That's why they created the Visual Design Group, and the Visual Design Group had mock-ups for the software center that looked totally different than what shipped. Wow. Uh, he says someone must have gotten drunk when they coded the UI. That's the only guess he has. And then, I'm gonna, and then we're almost done, and we'll get to jump in. But I just want to get through his major points here. When we bring up an important distinction between KDE and GNOME, GNOME feels like a product, right? That's what he says. It feels like a product. But KDE, that doesn't, KDE doesn't feel like a cohesive experience. He says, KDE doesn't feel like it has a direction it's moving on. It doesn't feel like it's a full experience. KDE feels like it's a bunch of pieces that are moving in a bunch of different directions that just happen to have a shared toolkit beneath them. Right. I think this speaks a lot to um, what we see in general, where you know a lot of people gripe about GNOME, they lose customization, all that kind of stuff. And I think there's very diverse camps within the Linux group. Some people want to be able to tinker. They want, they're okay if it doesn't work for the first 10 hours, but afterwards it works great. But GNOME really does feel like a product where it's been integrated, it's been considered, it's been designed. It looks like, you know, you feel like a lot of elements were painstakingly thought about. Exactly. Uh, he says, so then I thought this was a final conclusion here, and you'll have the whole article linked in the show notes, which is a good read with lots of good screenshot examples. He says, will I still use GNOME after this week? Probably not, no. GNOME is still trying to force a workflow on me that I don't follow or abide by. I feel less productive when using it because it doesn't follow my paradigm. So at the end of all of this, he's not switching back to GNOME. But uh, this, this hit a lot of pieces for me. And uh, Rotten, do you want to open up? Because I know you just mentioned at the top of the show that you've been running KDE for a little while now. And uh, as you switched from GNOME to KDE, do you, do you detect this sort of – I thought this line that he put here, a bunch of different moving software pieces and going in different directions that use the same shared toolkit beneath them. That really struck a chord with me when I think of KDE. It's like everything does talk super well together, but at the same time, it is a bit of a mess in terms of like jumbled together. Like, man, look at like the, the sound. Like you can look at the sound settings, right? When you're looking at the sound settings in KDE, it's really isn't, don't you think it's really bizarre that they have like, uh, in fact, you know what? He has a screenshot. So here's a screenshot right here of GNOME sound versus KDE sound. Now, here is what blows me away about KDE sound, the sound settings. You see what's at the very top of the GNOME? What's that very top slider right there, Wes? What is that right there? Output volume. That's the output volume. You know what's missing completely from the KDE sound applet? There is no effing volume slider. But you know what there is? There is a left-hand list of device priorities for application notifications, music, video communications, audio recording, and video recording. And in each one of these categories, I can move around which sound card takes priority. Pretty neat feature. 
probably not used as often as the volume slider in the volume control panel, though. Ten to one right there, yeah. Right. This is what I'm talking about. What kind of sense does that make? For for developers and, and advanced users, that's a really slick feature. And I bet even advanced users and developers set that once or twice when they set up the KDE desktop, and they never go back and change that priority list. I never mess with that priority list. I just want to set my default audio device and set the volume. I just want to do two things. And this GNOME system lets me set my output device and set the volume right there. And it, it's, that, it's like that everywhere. The defaults are crazy in KDE. Now, uh, Rotten, have you noticed this as you've moved over from GNOME to KDE? Or to you, is it refreshing in a sense? As far as the way the cohesiveness is? Yeah, KDE? does it feel like a bunch of different stuff to just share the same toolkit? No. I mean, it feels like a cohesive unit. It's just a messy cohesion. <laughs> the, the, the example of the, of the sound says the the sound slider does exist in KDE. It's just not in the settings section. It's in the applet that's on the panel. Or yeah, the taskbar. I know. They call it. I know. Uh, which is fine. Uh, and you would say, well, these are settings, so you want to change the different devices and stuff like that. So it it's 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 nice and it's more polished the way GNOME does it, but it's not necessarily a complete necessity for KDE to do that way because they already give you the slider and they give you KMix gives you a ton of control over the different sliders for the different applications and the different uh, outputs and stuff like that. It's and it's really nice cuz it's all right in that one that one widget so you don't have to open up like for example with uh with if you want to change stuff based on a particular application or a particular output for say a, a plugin that you have two different YouTube channels playing Yeah, that's that's something. neat, but why not? Okay, so this is a use case scenario. Let's be honest. How many people are doing this? Probably not very. And those people that could do that could just install Puva control. Yeah, but my point is is that if you if you have like it's not really that polished if the aspects of um, what you want to do are available in KDE, but they're not available at all in GNOME. I would and say then vice versa, I would disagree. Kind of I think I think this what they have struck is such an imbalance between polish and options that it's a it's a mess. It's not polished at all. And and I think if you know, I, yes, there is a no, sound no, I'm slider. GNOME is the polished one. Yeah. I, yeah. Okay. Well, that. Yeah. And I I I I just. I think it does. I think it is a little. I think it is a little. The sound. The sound settings here is a little indicative of the whole problem. I know there's a sound slider in the in the menu bar, but like every other desktop environment, literally made every other desktop environment, uh, like Windows and 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 OS ten included in that, have the slider there for a very good reason. Because when you're changing your different output devices and you're changing your different alert settings, you want to be able to adjust the volume to see what I do this all the time. This is a very very common function, and it just makes sense to have it there. Um, anyway, to be fair, they they're they're still porting a lot of stuff to five, and there he's showing a screenshot from Plasma Five, but that's not really a fair screenshot considering that's that's KDE four version of that application. So just because that's how it looks in Plasma Five doesn't mean that's what it's going to be when it finally releases the new port. Well, here's and what I was going to ask: This is also true with pretty much most of their applications. Does it matter? Like, is the KDE approach necessarily wrong? It's sort of, I mean, what's the Unix philosophy? A lot of little tools working together to build something great. Is that necessarily, if, if you could have a, a, a nice desktop environment, a lot of different tools that use a common toolkit and a common design language, which is what the, v, what the visual design group is supposed to be pushing, but it depends on the projects adopted, um, then is that necessarily the wrong approach? I think a lot of times we see two different approaches to something, and we just assume one is right and one is wrong. I don't necessarily think that's the case. I think, for me... 
I like it. So uh, I said this a long time ago. I really like the I like the fact that GNOME feels like the Linux desktop for for some reason. Like from just something about the whole thing, it, it feels like GNOME is sitting directly on top of more fundamental Linux technologies than say KDE is. Uh, and so, uh, to me, the whole cohesiveness feels like a really good desktop environment. That's what I want out of my environment. But like Rotten's saying right now, there's a whole other group of people who want those other things. Doesn't mean that's the wrong approach. Yeah, definitely. I think it enriches our ecosystem well, to have both being actively developed. Yeah. What are you going to say, Rotten? No? Okay. Not Rotten has nothing to that. Uh, Actually, I... I th- yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, I totally do. I totally do. I always have something to say. <laughs> um, so... Uh, so I just posted a screenshot in the IRC okay. of KDE, what my KDE looks like now. I'm not done, but you'll see it kind of resembles something, right? Wow, it looks a lot like GNOME, to be honest with you. Yeah, that was actually the purpose. Yeah, that looks, I, that I looks, made, like, it looks exactly like, like GNOME. Is, yeah, it does. So the reason why is because I think KDE is atrocious looking. It is like the default for 5 is actually really... really to the point where it's reasonable to, to say that I might actually try that. But the default for KDE 4, which is the current stable release, is atrocious. Um, so I, the reason why my KDE looks good and it looks like, co- like a lot more cohesiveness is because I changed a crap load of things. Mm-hmm. I, I've done I, that too. I, I, it just seems like <laughs> such a waste of energy. It almost feels well, like yeah, you I used mean, KDE the, to make a gnome. So, yeah. But I did, actually. But my point is that you could take... You can take KDE to any direction you mm-hmm, want, and that's true. the power of it. Yes. The, des- the design group is actually going to fix the overall cohesiveness of it. So eventually, it will be a very good solution. I'm actually starting but to... But it's not... I'm starting to doubt it's the design... not necessarily there yet. I'm starting to doubt the design group will actually have much influence. I mean, they've had, some de- they've had some great influence on the desktop itself, but then, like, other projects outside of the direct desktop don't really seem to be... Like, a, like, a, like Dragon Player, for example, or Armorock, for example... Not seen a lot of uh, changes there. Well, in they design. haven't. They haven't been ported. They haven't gotten to the point of actually starting to port those. Like even Dolphin is one of the most important yeah, applications for, sure. for right. KDE right. users, and it hasn't. It's only had slightly started the porting process right now. It's painful. So they still have a. They still have a lot of work to do, and it's actually impressive how much work they've done in only like nine months. Yeah, I. I yeah. Because they they've. They've t- they've essentially rewritten like seventy percent of the code of KDE in order to do f- Plasma Five, and it is very impressive. Yeah. It's t- it's not ready by any means, but it is it is getting to the point where the fundamentals is, seem there. It's you like, can see the potential of it. But that's but rotten. That's where it's been since before Plasma Five was even a thing. It's where it's been, and and like you talked about no, one no, of the, no. you, you well uh, like there's a couple of there's always been a couple of constants. QT's always been badass, and Kwin's always gotten well Kwin's gotten K-Win's extremely great. badass right and in fact yeah, Martin's just K- recently been awesome. he's recently Martin's been talking awesome. about all the work on his you know to get Kaylin working Kwin working on Wayland it's getting really close it's really exciting so yeah. uh, Kwin is actually fantastic and it's more fantastic than people know because Kwin has this built in feature for window rules which is basically like uh saving features of how you actually lay out your windows. So if you don't want window decorations, you can turn it off, save mm. that. If you want it to, your windows to be a specific size, specific location on your screen, which screen you want it to be on, what desktop you want it to be on, different things like that, you can control it like to ridiculous degrees that there are certain <laughs> settings that I would never even bother right, because yeah. they're, they're so specific. And the new, but the coolest one right now is that it, 4 does not have it, but Plasma 5 is an example of the design group 
seeing how that this is going to be a benefit is that uh, the window rules in five allow you to change the colors per application. But are you well? Okay, that is kind of cool. <laughs> You're going to do that, and then I'm like, well, maybe you would just so it grabs you. Yeah, okay. I mean, I yeah, love this exactly. stuff. Yeah, it's they have they, the fun functionally. KDE is amazing visually. Right now in four, it is uh, actually kind of like hurts my eyes most of the time, but. It is getting to the point where they actually have improved the icons, they've improved the, the window decorations, and they've improved a ton of things, and it has potential to eventually, you know, even visually compete against GNOME. But I, right now, GNOME yeah. is definitely the more visually appealing, but it's also not as powerful functionally as KDE is. Here's the so thing, So it depends though. on which one you want. I, at the end of the day, I think the big problem, KDE's biggest problem is that they might be too much desktop for what people really use today. Uh, I think a very common use case scenario for the Linux desktop is a couple of applications running all the time, like a web browser, a chat program, email probably. And Throw in a terminal, please. Absolutely. And you're sure. pretty much done. Yeah. And uh, you don't need a lot more functionality from your desktop. That's why so many people are able to use Tiling Window Managers. Yeah, exactly. Now, that said, yep. I too, Rotten, have gone down the path you had where I, I, I mean, I really spent some time. I got the uh, icon-only launcher sidebar going for a dock. I got a, you know, a top bar going with the clock. I, I mean, it really made it look nice, but it just still didn't feel as one cohesive product. But I like... Well, I mean, I, I, just, I don't think that um, Gnome feels like a cohesive product that's got certain pieces that are broken. Like and, and just to point out, I'm a I'm a GNOME fanboy. I've been using GNOME <laughs> for a decade, and I and I actually love GNOME Shell and GNOME Three. It is the the and not on, the reason why I my my uh, current KDE setup looks like GNOME is because I actually enjoy the workflow of GNOME. So the guy who wrote that article said he hated that workflow and didn't want it anymore. I was like, well, I actually love that workflow. Yeah, it works for me too. And I will use it on either KDE or GNOME. It doesn't matter. I love that workflow. Yeah, me too. But the point is mainly that. If I set up something in KDE, it will remember it, it will save it, it will do exactly what I tell it to do. With GNOME, if I tell it to all, I have to install an, an extension in order to get it to, to load an application on a particular workspace. But if I put it on w- a different monitor, it won't remember that monitor. Yeah, it drives me load crazy. It. I have to move everything. Like, I know. So there's, there's I know. I agree. I agree. There's, and yeah, Dolphin, there's in my opinion, Dolphin so is a better close. file manager than Nautilus too. In my opinion, I would say Dolphin is the better for Linux, just in general. Yeah. So, that, but that's that's that's. Gosh, you're kind of making like me the, want to try KDE out for like a week again. Kind of making I, me. I know. I'm actually. I'm, I'm kind. I'm actually kind of feeling dirty about saying all this stuff as a GNOME fanboy. <laughs> I even I released. I like. I actually like released uh, updates and patches to extensions for GNOME because I used them and someone didn't wasn't maintaining it, so I started maintaining it and stuff like that. And and I still do it even while I'm running KDE. So it's. It makes me feel a little weird, but I have to acknowledge the the, the fantastic yeah, features that yeah. KDE provides. I agree. And uh, yeah, I, and uh, you've made it, it look pretty good. If it didn't take so much effort to make it look good, yeah, exactly. If it <laughs> if it takes so much effort to do that, it would be a fantastic de- uh, desktop environment. And how long do you think it took you? How long do you think you spent? Uh, to actually make it look right, mm-hmm. well, for me, it's not fair to comparison the time. For other people, it would take a lot longer because I'm a graphics artist. I know how to modify SVGs and everything like that. Which, by the way, KDE is dependent on SVGs for the desktop shells mm-hmm. themes. Mm-hmm. So, if you don't know how to do that, you're pretty much hopeless. If I mean, it's, it, it is hopeless for you to do it uh, because you have to learn how to modify uh, SVGs to do that. But 
you have to figure out what app, what widgets fit. And but like the very first time I did it, it took me probably about a week and a half, and this time it took me about two or three days because I had to first teach myself how does KDE do all these different things, and it, it was it was a lot more effort than I expected, but it was still possible to do it. But I think the majority of people who don't have the skill set I do would not have as fast of an experience. And even though it's not, it's still a couple days and it's not fast, I think it would be much worse for hmm. them. Yeah, it took me a couple of days to get it the way I want. I might, gosh, dang it. Hmm. You're but gonna I have actually to install have, it again. Yeah, I'm going to have to install it again. I'm going to have to give it a I go. Can sh- I can show you another. I actually have like a whole. The very first time I made my GNOME KDE, my GNOME like KDE setup. It looked different than what I have now, but I, it, uh, I did like a full layout of like, here's a screenshot of here's what it looks like in here because I finished it. It took me about I a just, week and a half I don't know what I get. That. I mean, GNOME works for me and I don't have sound issues. That's what I keep coming back to, but I want to try it. I keep wanting, I, when I try KD for, you, for a little while, I usually really enjoy it. So, uh, well, Here's the other, here's one, yeah. one of the first last thing I'll say. Okay. The reason why I actually got really annoyed at GNOME, and I, I love GNOME. I got really annoyed by <laughs> multiple monitor support. Yeah, because it is, it is like not only does it not remember the the the, the applications where they're supposed to be, it actually wouldn't remember which one I wanted to be primary, and it would it would start breaking in the point where one monitor would want to take over to the primary, and then would switch swap back and forth. Like weird things started happening, but so it just it got so it happened so many times that it just. I just kind of threw my hands up. I was like, well, let's see how KDE handles multiple monitors. And I haven't had a single problem with it at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we, so were, the, yeah. we were talking at lunch. KDE does have pretty good monitor control. And Yeah, all right, Rod, you convinced me. Anybody else in the mumber want to jump in on the topic of GNOME versus KDE when they switch between? Any final thoughts? Uh, I, I really want to recommend everybody go read the article. I thought it was a particularly good one, though. Um, all right, going once, going twice. All right. Chris, I think, yeah. uh, as, men- as you mentioned before, de- you know, there's definitely a spectrum, uh, you know, from you know the bare bones GNOME, very polished, mm-hmm. you know, but you know, not a lot of options to, you know, KDE with all of its options. Uh, I'm curious to see over the last you know year or so that GNOME has, that you know, the GNOME community has um, kind of come back or yeah. like, learned their lesson from the initial GNOME mm. three days. So, well, I hope so. Um, so I'm curious to see as time goes on if GNOME Plus extensions uh, are going to continue to be supported enough uh, to eat into the user base of uh, KDE users that want all the options. Yeah, I mean, the extensions West- are actually very solid. The, 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 this is actually a misconception I like to clear up about the GNOME extensions because I've been maintaining some, and this is just a, it's a problem with the GNOME uh, version software checking that it doesn't do it very well. And it doesn't have, like, for example, Firefox does it a much better solution. It's this version plus future versions. With GNOME, it's this version or nothing. So if it doesn't detect in your just your metadata that you are using that particular version you are currently on, it just breaks the extension. That's a really bad way to do it, but their current that's their current solution for making sure that you're not running stuff that's broken. So people think that every single time you update, you're breaking an extension. When really, it's just because the version number is not telling it it's the right one. Mm-hmm. If you just go in and change that version number, it almost like 90% of them work immediately. And it also means most of them, it's a quick update by the author to make it work, too. So that's been yeah, happening. Like Dash point. to Doc is getting turned around immediately these days. Like that plugin is getting fixed all the time. Now, Wes, have you noticed um, a change in tone towards GNOME 3 in the Linux community? 
Yeah, I would think so. I mean, probably two years ago, a year and a half ago, mostly negative. Yeah, right? At least in, you know, publicly facing Yeah, okay, that's what I observed too. But now it feels like, you know, it, it may not be everyone's favorite. It may yeah. not be what you use. Yeah. You know, I usually use Italian window manager at home, honestly. But yeah. um, I'm always happy to stick gnome on something and, and use it. Yeah. What's your favorite Italian window manager? I'm using Awesome currently. Yeah. Nice. Uh, interesting. I uh, I think I'm going to try KD on a secondary machine, but I'm not planning to switch away from gnome anytime soon. I just keep getting happier and happier with it. Probably just doubt about in time to start hearing about the next uh, Gnome 3.18 release, too, which could be pretty cool. Uh, all right. Well, if you guys have any thoughts on that story, we'd love to get your opinions, especially if you've been recently trying one of the other desktops and have a good perspective. Go to linuxactionshow.reddit.com and look for the feedback thread for episode 101 of the Unplugged, Unplugged program. Now, on Sunday's Linux Action Show, we talked about the big changes coming to this OpenSUSE project, and I know several people want to give us some feedback on that. Before we get to that, i got to thank DigitalOcean, sponsor of the Linux Unplugged program, and DigitalOcean is great. If you want some Linux infrastructure right now on demand for testing or production, check them out. DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up your own cloud server. And they have fantastic droplet support or uh, Docker support on their droplets. So you can create a nice local container, get a system all set up on your laptop or your desktop, and push it up to the DigitalOcean cloud, no problem at all. And here's the best part. It, you know, you could do that and save yourself a ton of time, but if you just want to create a server from scratch, it's Amazing. You can get started in less than 55 seconds, and pricing plans are only $5. That's where they start, $5 a month. Then the pricing structure goes up from there. Really nice, makes a lot of sense, and they even have hourly pricing available if you just want to do some testing. For $5, though, you're going to get 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, because they're all SSDs, one CPU, and a terabyte. A terabyte of transfer. And DigitalOcean has data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, and London. And they got a brand new one in Germany which is a great location. Now, what I love is all of this is backed by Linux. It's all running on top of KVM, and all of the disks are SSD-based. So you're going to get really, really good performance. You log into DigitalOcean's interface. It works on your tablet. It works on your phone. It works on your desktop. You get HTML5 console access. So if you want to watch the machine post and all the way up to the login screen, you can do that. It is a slick system. They've really taken the best open source Linux technologies and wrapped it around in a package that makes it very presentable and very easy for you to use. And I don't know if you've ever tried it, Wes. Oh, yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah? Oh, of course. So I, one of the things I love about DigitalOcean is I, it's like I know that if I want to go over and start getting working on something, the delay isn't going to be the creating the server or deploying the software. Like that's no longer the barrier anymore. Getting started on that stuff, which 10 years ago was like a two-week process to order the server and install the operating system, configure the firewall, rack it. Wait get, for the ticket to get updated. Yeah, yes, right. Talk to, yes, kind of talk to support. And now with DigitalOcean, you go over there and it's like – well, it's under a minute. You have a, a Linux virtual machine deployed. And if you use our promo code DO Unplugged, you'll get a $10 credit. And you can try out the $5 rig two months for free. And you can do one-click deployment of applications. Uh, like I've done one-click deployment of Ubuntu 14.04 with Apache already just ready to go on there. So I don't have to bother with that. And the nice thing is it's already subscribed to the repo, so it's going to get all the updates from Ubuntu. And I'll do local mirrors of the Ubuntu repos too, so you can pull it down at like, you know, tens of Ridiculous. megabytes a second. It's great. It's so cool to watch that. I love watching the updates go boom, 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 boom. Like, yeah, that, it feels like it's supercharged. Their interface is so great for managing all this. Very intuitive. But the best part is they have an API to let you replicate it, which is really nice because there's some great apps around that. They have really, really good tutorials too. In fact, go over to DigitalOcean. Remember, use the promo code Unplugged. Check out that community section. They're updating this all the time. Like, here's one, how to update 
the scaling of your web application on DigitalOcean. That's genius when you think about the fact that DigitalOcean is hourly pricing. So if you need to scale for a little while, woo, that's cool. Oh, buddy, 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 I've been waiting for this one. How to create a blog with Ghost and Nginx on Ubuntu 14.04. This is it. If you're going to do a blog for yourself or for your company, WordPress is great. Mad props to WordPress. Check out Ghost. And they have a community uh, uh, tutorial on it right here. Or how to use uh, Arango DB. I'm not a, are you familiar with Arango? I am not. I don't no. know what Arango I like it. It has avocados as its... Uh, I know where we can learn more, though. Yes, I, <laughs> exactly. DigitalOcean.com and use the promo code DO Unplugged. They've also got uh, FreeBSD if you're a masochist, CoreOS, uh, Fedora 22, Debian, Ubuntu. I'm kidding about the FreeBSD thing. I think it's really cool they have support for it. It's actually... Not a no technical joke either. You know they got that working in KVM. They worked upstream with the uh, FreeBSD project. They same with CoreOS too. They work they work directly with the projects oh, to make awesome. this stuff happen. It's really cool, and you can try it out two months for free when you use the promo code DO Unplugged. Go get yourself a Linux rig. You want to try de-Googlefying your life for a little while. You want to do an own cloud instance, or maybe you want to see if you can host your own photo gallery, or maybe you want your own Mumble chat server. Set up your own lug. You do it all on a DigitalOcean droplet, DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code DOUnplugged. And a big, big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the Unplugged program. All right. So this was the basic feedback we got from Sunday's show. Uh, one lost user wrote, I don't really get why Chris and Noah are puzzled by SUSE and what OpenSUSE intend to do. The new distro will be uh, SUS Linux Enterprise to what CentOS is to Red Hat Enterprise Linux. There will be Tumbleweed, the bleeding edge, always rolling distro. They'll be much better uh, in much better shape than Rawhide because OpenSUSE actually expects people to use it as a desktop OS as opposed to Rawhide is always broken. There will be an OpenSUSE 42, which is going to be based on SUSE Linux Enterprise sources. People will be able to use it uh, as such others do with like CentOS. It'll be um, it's extremely easy for OpenSUSE and SUSE to switch between 42, to switch to the Enterprise version and back and forth. It looks like a very smart move, he believes. Now, uh, Rotten, you were watching live and we covered it, and you said you wanted to jump in on the feedback, so I'll open it up to you first, and then we'll kick around to other people. Rotten, what was your main takeaway from the coverage and your opinion on the setup? Well, the first thing is that this guy is wrong. The, the, the guy you just read wrote in, it's, that's wrong. Yeah, I, it's I, not a CentOS to Red Hat. Thing. I agreed with that too. I don't think it really is a CentOS to Red Hat Enterprise thing either. Yeah. So basically, what they're saying, they've even specifically were asked if they did this, uh, was Open OpenSUSE going to be become like an Open Slee thing? Mm-hmm. And they said, no, definitely not. They're going to be doing their OpenSUSE is just going to be based on Slee, so it's going to have all the same packages for Slee, but it's not going to have the you know. The ex- it's not going to be the exact same thing. It's going to have sleep packages plus their own packages to create the OpenSUSE desktop. The the goal was to have like an integration with SUSE and OpenSUSE, which they didn't used to have. There was a huge gap between the two. But also, uh, sorry, my dog's actually drinking water. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's all right. So I I we got we got a lot of different feedback rotten on it, and some people. Some people uh, like this a lot. Uh, so here was a here was a here was a response we got from R uh, R Brown from Seuss. He says something like this is what he wanted to. He gave us a couple of links. He says what we realized is what we realized is we were we were building here doesn't fit into traditional models anymore. We find that for us that we're not really serving the purpose they used to traditional uh, release models do for a community based distro or even enterprise distro perspective. With all the testing we do for Tumbleweed in our open QA process, we've managed to make a rolling release that only rolls when we know the test the thing isn't broken so they test it first given the motivator for so many people for traditional community releases is i want the latest shiny new stuff but i only want it when it works tumbleweed managed to do that without a six to twelve month waiting period is that possible yeah 
They actually had gnome first before Arch. So in three sixty. That doesn't mean that it's that doesn't mean that it's flawless. It was, it was it was it actually was it wasn't flawless. I think the exa- it was an exaggeration to claim flawless, but it was it was very stable. And uh, I tried it out because I was you know being impatient, and it actually was really good. It didn't I didn't notice any huge breaks or anything. I just I mean I noticed some like gnome specific things, but that was just gnome things. But the uh, the point about tumbleweed though is they kind of explained in a weird diagram of what the initial goal is, is that tumbleweed will be like the sources for Slee. Yeah. Eventually in snapshot form. So tumbleweed will be constantly being updated and maintained. And then at some point in like every couple of years or so, they would take a snapshot of tumbleweed, throw it into Slee. Then uh, Susa would do their stuff to it. Then they would become the the core base to open susa which then does their own stuff on top of it so basically uh, what noah was like you know talking about on last how he wanted a a desktop enterprise to solution that's is pretty much what open susa is talking about yeah uh, uh it seems to me though that open susa is essentially going to be just about as as uh, and i think that's where the comparison to centos comes in it's going to be just about as stale as sluice enterprise linux right no no, because they, you like, you think they'll replace certain components as they need to? Yes, they've already said that they they were even thinking about having up, updating the desktop environments uh, away from uh, Slee. They haven't specified whether they're going to or yeah. not, but they said that, that there's a potential that they will. So that there could absolutely be um, the the core fundamental packages are not are going to be the same. You know, I guess stale if you want to say it for um, like with Slee stuff, but the. The the, the the user space on top would be m- not you know pretty much not as fast as tumbleweed but a mm-hmm. lot faster than their current structure. Well, I, so I uh, it would be kind of like a LTS base with a right. Okay, that's what I was going to ask. A, is that is that am I picturing the right thing when it's like uh, I I guess here's what I and Richard I really appreciate him responding in the subreddit too. I guess what I don't quite understand is um, how I still don't. Why would I choose? Why would I choose? I, I guess. I guess I would have to wait and find out what components they're going to individually choose to replace and upgrade apart from Slee before I know if OpenSUSE is going to fit for me. Because right now it sounds like there's a lot but of what ifs. Like if they, well, no, hear me out. If like if 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 they decide if they decide to update the desktop environment and the web browsers and things like that, you know, all those user land applications, that's pretty slick. Kind of sounds like what Mint's doing. But if they decide, well, we don't really have the manpower to do that. Then it seems like it could get to be just a basic CentOS kind of clone, and, and here's why I am concerned about that happening. A, I don't believe that OpenQA is going to catch all this stuff. I think the way you catch stuff in Linux a lot of times is just a function of a lot of people use it for a while. They eventually find a bug and they fix it, and then somebody patches that bug, and then a distro finally ships it. Otherwise, it goes right back to manpower, right? Because otherwise, you could just use rolling all the time. So I think okay, I, don't, I don't I don't I don't know if unit testing is really going to make a rolling distro that much stable over another one, and I think you could have a bit of a reputation burn there. Okay, but that's point number one. Now let me make a second point. Second point: the reason why I'm concerned more about OpenSUSE and what components they're going to replace is because I think if we're totally honest with ourselves, why are we in this position right now? Why are they making OpenSUSE 42? Why are they doing tumbleweed? Why are they doing? Why are they going to base OpenSUSE off of Slee? Why? Because only a couple of people are working on the project anymore, OpenSUSE. Nobody's working on it. 
Nobody cares about it. They're all working on Tumbleweed or Sousa Enterprise. They said so themselves in their own presentation and in their own blog posts. The fundamental problem with the last release of OpenSUSE is nobody wants to work on it. They all want to work on Tumbleweed or the big dog. And so if that is a problem today... How is that not going to be a problem two years, a year down the road, when they have this thing that's based on something that's already done, but now they have this pain in the neck where they have to replace certain components and stay on top of that and ship it all the time? It seems like they'll eventually just be right back in the same position they're at today. Tumbleweed will get all of the current active attention, and Slee's going to get all of the stability and money-focused attention. How does this solve their fundamental problem? Okay, so to answer one about whether what is the reason to you to, to use this, you use Arch, so everything is rolling anyway, so you would be Tumbleweed. Just like the exact transition, you would just move to Tumbleweed and you have the same Yeah, and I get that. Tumbleweed makes sense to me. I get it. I, I, mean, I, don't know right, if I, so. I don't know if I believe it's going to be as trouble-free as they say, but I bet it's going to be oh, more trouble-free. But I saw Tumbleweed makes sense. Sousa Enterprise makes sense to me. And I also see from a business standpoint where they have the dedication and resources. That it all makes sense. Okay, so the, the second one, the, you don't understand why they would do. Well, this, how? how this what, what are they? What do we? So, OpenSUSE to me, uh, forty-two sounds like what it's going to be is a pretty cool product based on some pretty nice, stable enterprise upstream source code. Now, then they're going to go well. This chunk and this chunk and this chunk, and they've explained they've made it very easy to modularize and replace these chunks. They're going to say this chunk, this chunk, and this chunk. We're going to swap out, and we're going to maintain this ourselves on top of this Slee base, KDE, GNOME. Firefox, whatever. We're going to maintain this on top of the sleeve base ourselves. Well, then aren't they just getting right back on this treadmill that they've been running this entire time that they all jumped ship from? I mean, it's, I'm mixing a lot of analogies here, but isn't this – what is different? What changes? Isn't the core issue the focus for the distro? Wasn't the core issue that sort of prompted this was that nobody was working on OpenSUSE? And I guess I, I guess what this sounds like is it sounds like we're trying to manage OpenSUSE a little bit. We want it. We need some. You know, Red Hat has CentOS and Fedora. They're doing they're doing Fedora Core. They're making Fedora Workstation and Fedora Cloud. They're getting very serious with the Atomic Project about making Fedora an actual cloud deployable uh, system. You're seeing you're seeing places like. Rackspace, you're seeing places like DigitalOcean deploy Fedora. You're not seeing them deploy OpenSUSE. That's got to bother them. So they want to get OpenSUSE into a place where it could be part of a VPS package. It could be something that's installed on demand. It's kind of embarrassing, isn't it? That one of the biggest, most for a long time, well-known distributions has like had very little game in the whole cloud space. Like Ubuntu just came and ate their lunch by surprise. And, and now I agree they have to do something to make OpenSUSE relevant in this space. It'd be great for them. And I think this could do it. I think this would do it. If I, if I knew OpenSUSE was based on enterprise source code, man, I'd feel a lot better about deploying that on a production VPS for sure. I still don't see, though, why, why they are incentivized to maintain these individual layers of it and keep those competitive when they're not incentivized to do it today. That's the part I'm not seeing. Okay, for, there's two things. There's the gap between SUSE and OpenSUSE. Uh, for example, with Red, Red Hat, they have peeped the code in Fedora. They have code in CentOS that they can take improvements from Fedora and CentOS and easily put them in the Red Hat if they deem worthy to be in there. SUSE and OpenSUSE don't have that. They don't have the integration that Red Hat does. So th- for one, it solves that integration problem because the core structure of OpenSUSE is going to be based on SLE, and then Tumbleweed would eventually become snapshots for SLE. So they would get this integration level back into the the benefits of SUSE with the, the backing and funding of everything and actually have a lot of work that's not just on the OpenSUSE side. 
So right now, the reason why you, your example that they didn't have much attention in open source because they wanted to tumbleweed, well, it's a community effort in that case, mm-hmm. and the people choose what they want to work on. And open source didn't have a lot of people working on the open source stable release because they wanted to be on tumbleweed, and they didn't have a ba- a base that they could build build on to actually make that work. Yeah. So. This is actually solving that problem. How does so it, it solve that problem? What, they want. what does it change? Because they're to me, not makes... going to have to put that work in. Because the whole point of OpenSUSE right now, that the reason that was a problem is because they only had a few, a handful of people working on because this, because this fundamental thing that they're they're handling everything. This, now they don't have to handle it because they're going to pull it in from Tumbleweed. Because they're, they're going to do the work in Tumbleweed. In from tumbleweed and and from Slate. And then they'll use so it's uh, like a hybrid. In the and middle. then plus, I'm sure they've. I, maybe you could tell me if this is true or not. Have they finished development on LibMagic that totally resolves all of the library issues between major versions when you're going from a stable enterprise distro to something rolling? Does uh, LibMagic just handle all of that? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, because we've. Okay, I mean, like, so like, let's look at Cinnamon. Why? Why has Cinnamon had so many problems landing in Arch when it's a rolling distribution? Because GTK underneath changes, and Cinnamon depends on an older version of GTK, and then all of a sudden, you can't install Cinnamon on a rolling distro anymore. Now, is Tumbleweed going to make the decision in this case to hold GTK back, or am I going to be able to replace the entire GTK installation using the OpenSUSE build service? Like, how is how are they legitimately going to solve these real-world problems that have plagued every other Linux distro since the invention of a rolling distro? How are they going to solve that? They're not going to roll everything. Like Tumbleweed will roll everything, and it will. You, sure. You're not going to. You're not going to have any kind of connection with the stability issues whatsoever. The 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 part where they're they're pulling stuff from. They're going to pull stuff from Tumbleweed when it suits. Like for example, application level of like Firefox and things like that. Yeah. That will yeah. not have any kind of. I, I, that makes then sense. But it might, seems like it seems like then there's going to be limitations. Like there's going to be a certain pressure to uh, to keep OpenSUSE at least in somewhat compatibility sync with tumbleweed so that way they can move more stuff over because the further those two drift the less and less things they should be able to pull over from tumbleweed i would think well yeah but like fundamental things yes that'd be the problem but they also are saying that it's not just tumbleweed that they're pulling from they're also going to be as the community of OpenSUSE, not just the tumbleweed yeah sure but why isn't that happening today See, that's part of the argument I don't get. Yeah, sure, they can custom develop that stuff. They can make that stuff keep working on OpenSUSE. They could be doing that today, and they're not doing it. I mean, they are doing it, but barely. They're barely getting it out the door. Well, that's because they are doing everything. Yeah, I, I, you know, that could be, right? Yeah, maybe this will be enough of a pressure release. Yeah, boy, that'd be great. Good point. Uh, that'd be really cool if this could... I, 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 I have these questions that I've raised, and I, I guess sometimes when I ask these kinds of questions, it sounds like I think it's a really dumb idea. Or it sounds like I don't think they should do it. And that's not the case at all. I'm just wondering, like, how are they going to – these – I guess what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to identify what I f- perceive to be challenges they're going to have to overcome. And I'm really glad somebody's trying this approach because I don't really think the Fedora one's going to necessarily resonate for a lot of people on servers. Uh, and I just think that there is a great space in here for OpenSUSE to fill with this sort of SLE-based upstream source codes that give me a sort of assurance that it's based on a really quality enterprise product. I think this could be a killer. I'm not saying it's going to be a flop, but I am saying I think there's going to be significant challenges that I don't quite see all the solutions to. So I'm not trying to poop on it. Well, I mean, I just think that like the the, the fundamental changes is that the people who are working on the the stuff to improve the user space in OpenSUSE and they also had to deal with the 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 core fundamentals as well. But now they don't have to do that, so they can do a lot more even in the OpenSUSE stable release level without the tumbleweed. So they have they can they can like the pressure release is the biggest 
benefit of this, but you also have the people who want a stable base with the rolling top, mm-hmm. or not even necessarily rolling, but just more up to date than a regular release of most distros. I, I got it. Oh man, I think for me, I think like because I don't really care what happens with Slee or OpenSUSE so much as I think Tumbleweed is going to get really appealing to a user like me uh, because uh, so not only do you have some really interesting technologies there, but I also find the technologies around SUSE to be or open SUSE to be pretty to be pretty sexy. Like the open SUSE build service and the images where you can go custom machine and crank that out and download that as an ISO and it's like here's my machine already preset up. Like all that stuff really makes me hot. I think that's super great. And so you build yeah. a really great distro around that. And you know, like I actually think Zipper is a pretty decent technology. And I like that they're bold enough to back ButterFS, even if I think it's currently a train wreck that makes people lose data. But you know, like uh, Martin from the Netherlands wrote in. And Martin said, uh, what makes OpenSUSE unique is that it's easy enough to understand for anyone with a Windows technical background. You kind of have the Windows paradigm when you use their KDE desktop. Yast is a lot like the control panel. All system settings can be configured via a GUI, unlike Fedora. And at the same time, it remains fully focused on open source, where everything is contributed back upstream, unlike Ubuntu, which is... mm. They have a corporate backing, giving me a feeling that the distribution won't disappear anytime soon. He says, and I love this line, Martin says, it's like the Toyota of Linux distributions. It's a bit boring to drive, but from a technical and reliability standpoint, it's the best. That's not bad. That's not that's not a bad way to put it, really. And I don't think that's a slam at all. I think that's a I think it's a really good spot to be in as a distro, especially if you want people installing on your servers. All right, guys. Anybody have any closing thoughts before we uh, close the books on on this one? Well, yeah. finally, just the OBS is mm-hmm. another example of the updating software. So, like the PPAs that Ubuntu have, OBS are going to provide some a similar thing, yeah. but a lot more. You know, organized way to do it, but and also more approachable. The, Definitely. Yeah, the cool thing is, is that not only is the sources from Slee coming to OpenSUSE, they're actually going to the OBS. So you really anybody who wants to get a source can do it. And it, you can actually, if you wanted to, maybe this is just like I'm completely talking out of my butt, out of my butt right now. But SUSE Studio plus the OBS plus the Slee releases, maybe you can make your own Slee. Yeah, I think you definitely could. I think that's definitely wow. Yeah, especially with the build service, that's gonna that's gonna be a thing. That's definitely gonna be, and that could be great for enterprises. Oh yeah, definitely. Ah, oh, and good, good, good thought, good thought. Well, Wes, man, thank you for joining me in studio today. My pleasure. It's good having you here, and uh, thank you everybody in the mumble room for joining us and giving us your thoughts. If you'd like to join the unplugged program, hang on our virtual lug. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com/slash/calendar. You get the live times over there. We do it over at jblive.tv, where you can have your flash player armed and ready to go. No, disable Flash this week. That's our mission. Disable Flash. Use HLS, RTSP, RTMP. We've got it there linked. Uh, or go to jblive.fm and listen in audio. Now, uh, we do it over jblive.tv. You don't have to use Flash if you don't want to, but we do it at uh, 1 p.m. or 2 p.m.? 2 p.m. 2 Pacific. p.m. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Because we got to have time for lunch, guys. Right? Got to have time for lunch. And Linux beer. A- yeah, and beer. LinuxActionShow.reddit.com for feedback to this week's episode. And uh, join us right back here next Tuesday. show is in the bag 
Oh, uh, all right. Any uh, post-show topics we wanted to get to before we uh, skedats? I got a meeting I got to get to in a little bit. I feel like I, um, I think I feel like I talked just as much as you did. Yeah, you did talk a lot, but it was good because it was all. It was, it was a good thing you're here today because it was topics that were up your alley. I, I'm glad we got it covered. Um, First-hand yeah, Susie experience. Great topics here. and great conversation, guys. Yeah, it was. Thank you. And it's great having Wes. It's fun having somebody I can look over to and talk to because, like, otherwise I'm just standing here by myself. Uh, now, there was a privacy um, topic I wanted to retouch on, but uh, maybe mm-hmm. – I don't know. Since we don't have a lot of time, maybe it would be better to address it next time and we can actually spend some serious time on it. The uh, Mumble's got an update uh, that's coming out soon for, like, the next version of 1.3 is not going to have the stupid lips. What is it going to have instead? It's actually replacing the theme with an actual like good theme from uh, this guy named Xpoke, and he made something called Metro Mumble, which looks pretty slick. Using like, it now. Is, yeah. is, that the, is that the skin you and I were already Yes, using? it is. Metro okay. Mumble, I noticed huh? It does look pretty, though, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, a thing to oh, note, though, yeah, if, you have a cus- if you have a custom theme already applied, and then you update... Uh, it will unapply your custom theme and default to the light new theme. So if you're using the dark theme, like I was, it, it'll just go away randomly and you wonder why, and then you go and see that, oh, there's new options in the look and feel section. Not only is it new options, they've completely rebuilt the system, so the skin structure where you can control what you use is gone. You have to change a new arbitrary uh, folder structure that you have to place the themes in, and they don't tell you on Linux where your stuff is. They tell you on Windows and only Windows. <laughs> so you, I had to figure out where everything was. And it's like a stupid, arbitrary location that even in its own selection is just absurd because it is... Um, I'm going to type it in the chat right now, actually. Okay, Give him $5, so I'm so close to jeopardizing you. my mumble setup here. Is this just a theme that you could apply to an existing mumble? Yeah, I just applied yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. You can apply it to your existing mumble right Boom! now. But you in the new can, version. Oh. Go ahead. If you want to download and play it, you can. It's up to you. Yeah. All you have to do is restart the mumble. And oh, I didn't, even, I didn't even have to restart. I just hit apply, and then bam, I had it like a boost. I think. Well, some of the well, icons. Oh, yeah, you're right. You know, I should, I'll do that. I'll restart. I posted the, the location of the themes folder now. It's uh, local share mumble mumble themes. And the mumble twice is ref- is rep- important, and also the themes folder does not exist. You have to create it first and then put the theme in there. So, hey, would you mind, Mr. Corpse, uh, if we reset just really quick so we could put this in the pre-show, since a lot of people listening to the show use mumble, if you wanted to say, say, how could we do this? Actually, why don't we make this the uh, mumble pre-show? Uh, sure. The, uh, yeah, so maybe the theme, where to get it, and how where to put it on Linux while I go grab this printout, and that will be like the pre-show. Sure. All right, I'm muting my mic. Here you go. Have at it. Okay, so Mumble is, um, they're actually updating to a new version. It's, it's, there's currently you can get it in a PPA or in the AUR in a snapshot version, and it's 1.3. They're instituting a new default theme, which is actually really nice looking. But you can get it right now um, it's for use in 1.2 to add as a skin. And you get it from uh, the GitHub link I posted in the IRC. And... Uh, Put it wherever you want, and you can uh, just go into your settings for configure, and then choose the the QSS file inside of the skins structure. 
this is how you do it in 1.2. In 1.3, it's automatically already available, and you can choose between the light and the dark. The problem with that is that the 1.3, the theme is embedded into the program, so you can't change anything. And the whole, the, one of the reasons this theme is actually awesome is because the majority of the icons are SVGs. So, like, for example, when you open this theme by default, the non-talking icon is red, and I think that is hideous especially when it goes into my system tray, and it just full. So uh, you can change that in the SVG code, which is a slight hex file or hex value. Change it to white or gray, whatever fits best on your theme, and it's good to go. So the problem with the 1.3 is that you can't do that unless you download this theme and put it in the correct themes folder. And the correct theme folder is an arbitrary location that actually does not exist, you have to create the folder there. It is the location I just posted in IRC. It's .local slash share slash mumble slash mumble. Then themes folder does not exist. You create the theme folder. Then you put this extracted theme into that folder. And then the new 1.3 snapshot will notice that theme has been added and you can select it from the dropdown. And it will keep, it'll save all of your modifications and things like that. So I just applied it and lost all my audio. That shouldn't make any difference for the uh, themes. And I've, just, and I've just switched back and the audio came back. That is very weird. It's just skin, it shouldn't change any audio. Yeah, it doesn't change any audio whatsoever. Well, I, I got the new theme installed and working. I'm running the new theme on 1.3, so yeah. I've been like the thing that was annoying to me is that when I had I had the theme already, and then they updated, and it went to the same reverted, theme, yeah. but it turned into white, and it also essentially ignored all the modifications I did because it wasn't looking for the right folder anymore. And when you when I went to ask them where it was, they had no idea. The, the developers, or, or maybe not the developers that actually made the change, but the, the people who are the support team in Mumble for the IRC mm-hmm. had no clue where the stuff was located in, in Linux. They, yeah. they, they sent me a link that said, here's, here's where it is. Like, well, that's Windows only, and that's not very helpful. Uh, so essentially, I had to figure it out myself, and it took me about 30 minutes, but that's the folder structure where it is now. So at least, you know, no one else has figured it out. And I'm going to edit their wiki so it actually displays it properly.